Beloved, today I'm going to be de- departing a little bit from the regular format of my sermons. Usually I begin with an introduction that leads into the theme and points, but uh, today I'm going to be jumping right into the theme and points, just the nature of uh, the content of the sermon. First, I'm going to be laying some groundwork uh, for the sermon, explain some concepts that will help us understand the rest of the message of this text uh, from here in, in Malachi. So with that, let me begin. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the theme and points for the sermon today are as follows. God calls His holy people to relationship faithfulness. That's the theme I'll be working with this morning. God calls His holy people to relationship faithfulness. And with that theme, we're going to explore uh, three specific points This includes how we, first of all, relate to each other. That's relate to each other as as, uh, fellow Christians, fellow believers in the church. Uh, Second of all, this includes how we find a spouse if we are a single and looking for a spouse. And finally, this includes how we, if we are married, how we treat our spouse. And we're going to see these things uh, come through in this text from Malachi. So, after Israel came out of Egypt... The Lord officially made his covenant with them at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, the Lord declared Israel's identity as his people when he said this to them, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this was Israel's identity before the Lord. It's the identity that God put upon them. They were his people, his holy nation. And in making them his holy covenant people, the Lord had some specific purposes for Israel, some intentions with his covenant with them. And while we can't mention all of them, some of those intentions and purposes include the following. Through Israel, God would bring the Messiah, or the Savior, into the world. Israel, as God's holy people, was meant to be a light to the heathen nations around them. The pagan nations would see how blessed the people were who had the Lord as their God. That was one intention. They would see, those pagan nations would see, it was far better to serve Yahweh than to serve their false idols. Furthermore, as God's treasured possession, Israel would also enjoy fellowship with holy God. That's what he wanted. And this also had implications for their relationship with their fellow Israelites. As God's one people gathered together as a holy nation, Israel was meant to enjoy unity and peace with each other. And finally, through Israel, God's purpose for creation would come to fruition. God's image bearers would fill the land, and they would serve the Lord through the generations. So those were some of the intentions, some of the purposes God had with his covenant for Israel. Now, this identity and this purpose required a certain response from Israel. It called for a certain way of life. 
And God's purposes for His holy nation would not come about if Israel acted contrary to its identity. And this meant they had to put on covenant faithfulness in their relationships, first of all, towards God, and then to each other as well. You see, a covenant relationship is a very sacred thing in Scripture. It's a relationship of trust and of service. It's a relationship where each person is supposed to recognize their obligations toward the other person in the covenant and seek the good of the other. It involves what can be described as covenant friendship. And faithful covenant friendship requires trustworthy behavior from both parties. Now, you may recall me saying this before, if you are a member here in this church. Uh, the Hebrew word describing this covenant faithfulness is the word uh, chesed. It's first and foremost a description of God's covenant loyalty and steadfast love. It's who God is and how he acts towards his people. However, uh, God's children are meant to also uh, reflect God's image and so display this same steadfast love and covenant loyalty. And Scripture gives us excellent human examples, uh, people who displayed this covenant loyalty. We could think of Boaz from the book of Ruth. He conducted his business and affairs with integrity. He ensured Ruth's safety by making sure she would not be harmed. He generously supplied for Ruth and Naomi's physical needs. He served as Ruth's kinsman redeemer, carefully following the law and the process. In every way, he showed himself faithful and trustworthy. Another great example is Jonathan in the book of 1 Samuel. Jonathan showed complete loyalty and dedication towards David. He loved David as himself, doing everything he could to help David and protect him. He always put David first and himself second, displaying wonderful covenant loyalty, steadfast love, and kindness. Now, the opposite of this type of person is someone who is a covenant traitor. He or she deals treacherously with others. In fact, that word, to deal treacherously with someone, is actually all over our text. The ESV just translated translate it as being faithless. Such a person betrays faith. And the clearest example of this sort of covenant traitor is Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed the Lord. He followed Jesus everywhere, acting as a faithful disciple. He heard Jesus' teaching and enjoyed uh, a measure of fellowship with him. But in the end, he proved faithless. He delivered Christ into the hands of wicked men to have him crucified. The Lord addresses Israel through Malachi because Israel was acting in that way. They were acting faithlessly 
even treacherously in their relationship with each other as fellow brothers and sisters in God's holy nation. Listen only to verse 10, where Malachi prophesies. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us, just like we sang about in hymn 12? Why then are we faithless, or why do we act treacherously to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, we're not told the exact nature of their treachery, but it could include any of the following. Rather than seeking the well-being of their fellow Israelites, they were maybe harming them for their own gain. Rather than speaking truthfully to each other, they were lying. Maybe they were lying to each other in order to trip them up or hide their own sins against one another. Rather than building each other up, maybe they were simply just tearing each other down, stirring up division. And this kind of behavior was completely contrary to their identity, who they were as God's people. Listen again to the reasoning of verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? What was the basis of their unity? It was that the Lord made the entire nation His holy covenant people. They all shared that identity. Because they were together God's holy people, this also brought them into a relation uh, with each other. Have we not all one Father, Malachi asks? This could refer, first of all, to the Lord. After all, God had adopted them as God's children. They were connected to one another. It could maybe refer also to Abraham. After all, Israel had its origin in Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham. And they were heirs of the same beautiful covenant promises that God once gave to, to Abraham. It was those promises that the Lord promised to be uh, their God and the God of their children that united them together. They were partakers in the one promise. And so through that covenant, God had united all Israel in His grand purpose for the world. And because this was their identity, how should these Israelites treated each other? Should have treated each other with love, faithfulness, and integrity. Their one God and their equal share in the promises of God should have resulted in beautiful unity, working for the good of their fellow Israelites in the fulfillment of God's purposes. Should have resulted in showing that chesed, that steadfast love to each other, just as Jonathan so lovingly showed to David. And you know what? It's not really any different for Christ's New Testament church either. The New Testament church, likewise, is God's holy nation. That's what we read from 1 Peter 2. Verse 9 declares, You are a chosen race, the church, 
You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you can recall, this is an, almost an exact echo, it pretty much is an exact wording of what God said to Israel in Exodus 19. We share the same identity as God's covenant people of old. We share in the same promises through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we are one holy nation together. We are one people of God together. And because this is true, listen to how Ephesians 4 describes our unity in strikingly similar terms as Malachi 2 verse 10. Paul writes there in Ephesians 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. Again, what do you, what do you see here? An echo of Malachi 2 verse 10. We as believers all have one Lord, one Spirit, one God, and one Father who has adopted us, who has made us, who has saved us. So that means our unity is not based on family connections. It's not based on common pastimes or maybe a shared culture or historical background, something like that. Our unity in the church is in the fact that we are all united together in one Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved us by His blood. We have one Father and one God in Jesus Christ. And this is our identity, so there is an inherent unity between us. And this inherent unity is meant to show itself in Christians, also here in this church, who treat each other with covenant love, loyalty, and faithfulness. In fact, that's the main application the Holy Spirit makes in Ephesians 4 based on the fact that we have one Lord, one Spirit, and one Father. He says, walk in a matter, manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity, unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We too are to display that chesed, that steadfast love toward each other. We think of Jonathan towards David. That's the aim, the goal of Christians toward each other as well. Now, you get an example of a wrong outworking of this in a letter such as 1 Corinthians. The Corinthian Christians were quarreling with each other. They were divided by following different teachers. They were jealous and there was strife among them. And the climax of this is found in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul admonishes them for making lawsuits against each other. He says, brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. By wronging and defrauding each other, the Corinthian Christians were acting treacherously against one another, just as Malachi is talking about here. Instead of that, we show steadfast love. When one person suffers, we suffer together with them. When one person rejoices, we rejoice together with them. We aim to follow the instructions of 1 Peter 2 and 3, to put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. We aim to have a unity of mind, to put on sympathy, brotherly, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That brings us to our second point. Well, the Lord moves on from here to address an even more pressing problem in Israel. Uh, we can see here in this text how the Israelite men were entering into a mixed marriages. They were marrying women who, uh, were, who were pagan. They did not uh, follow the Lord God. They did not believe in Him. And this is how God described it in verse 11. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, Malachi uh, prophesied to the exiles who had returned to Israel. And this was a big problem for uh, that time period. Both Ezra and Nehemiah had to confront this problem, and Malachi, who preached to the returned exiles, deals with the same issue here. And if the Lord let things go on like this, it would prove disastrous. These pagan women would surely draw these Israelite men away from the Lord. That's always how it works. Think only in what happened to King Solomon, someone endowed with such great wisdom his foreign wives drew him away from complete devotion to God. And if the returned exiles likewise engaged in mixed marriages, which was happening, it would only serve to draw Israel en masse away from the Lord. And this could very well lead to another exile again. So this had to be addressed. By entering into these mixed marriages, verse 11 says that Judah has been faithless. There's that word faithless again. They're committing a covenant treachery, as we could translate it. That's how these men were acting towards God by entering into these mixed marriages. Malachi says they have profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. Literally, it says they profaned the holiness of Yahweh. Now, this could indeed be a reference to the temple. That's how it sometimes is referred uh, to. It could be a reference to the holiness of the people by virtue of God's covenant. They have profaned that holiness. In any case, the main message is clear. These were daughters of a foreign god, it says. Idolatry was in their blood. And left in their idolatry, these... Uh, Women simply did not belong to the holy people of God. Israelite men were the sons of the Lord. 
In this culture especially, but still today, the two married families entered into fellowship with each other through marriage. And the Lord could never enter into fellowship with an idol. Therefore, the Lord could never bless this sort of marriage where these Israelite, covenant Israelite men were marrying idolatrous women. The other problem is that by engaging in these marriages, they were acting contrary to God's purposes for them as uh, God's covenant people. Remember, from the holy people of Israel, the Lord intended, He was working to bring the Christ, the Savior, into the world. And that purpose was in jeopardy if Israel remained in these mixed marriages and and kept uh, uh, having them. And so these Israelites had the completely wrong focus when seeking a spouse. The focus was on themselves, simply on their uh, fleshy desires and their own purposes. They were not thinking of their identity as God's holy people when entering into marriage. See, the problem was God's purposes and God's kingdom and God's holiness was not controlling their actions in this regard. And again, we can say the same principle remains true for the church today. We are God's holy people, set apart by the Lord. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, instructs us in 1 Corinthians 7 that when believers marry, they must marry only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. That is to someone who also is a believer and is part of the church. As the uh, Spirit says through Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of of the living God. It's similar language to Malachi here. They have profaned the temple of the Lord by entering into these mixed marriages. And so, for those of us who are seeking a spouse, God's kingdom and our identity as God's holy people must control our focus. No matter how beautiful a person is, no matter how smart, how funny, how nice, etc., etc. If that person is not a Christian, he or she is simply off limits when it comes to, to marriage and that sort of relationship. Don't even let your heart go there. You will be acting contrary to God's purposes for you and for God's people as a whole. Now, back in the first point, I brought up the example of Boaz. And some in Israel, some of the church might object, saying, well, didn't, didn't Boaz marry a foreign woman? If he did, you know, why can't I? But it must be stressed that Boaz only entered into a relationship with Ruth after she had pledged to serve the Lord and after she had committed herself to join the people of God. That's the proper order of things. That brings us to our last point. Finally, the Lord takes aim at one more thing 
that needs correction in Israel. Here in our text, it says they covered the Lord's altar with tears and groaning because God no longer accepted their offerings. When Israel asks why he isn't listening to them, the Lord responds by saying, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. There's that word again. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So some married Israelite men were being faithless. They were acting treacherously towards their rightful Israelite wives. They were in solemn covenant with them through marriage. But the problem was, they were not acting with steadfast love and covenant loyalty towards their spouse. Instead, they were acting with betrayal. They had forsaken marriage fidelity, protection, and love. We don't know everything involved in their treachery, However, it appears they were abandoning their spouses by sending them away, probably so that they could just marry someone else, maybe even these foreign women. Some forms of divorce were tolerated under the law of Moses. However, when a man did this, he had to write his wife a certificate of divorce before sending her away. This served to protect the spouse so that she could get married again within the land of Israel. Why did the Lord allow that? Why did he make that stipulation? Because the women were dependent on the income, on income of their husband at this time where they could not survive. But here in Malachi, it appears these men weren't even doing that. They were sending their spouse away, abandoning them. This left the women in an extremely difficult position. Left in the state, they could not remarry, they would suffer greatly, they might even perish. And that could explain why God described his men as covering their garments with violence, resulted in a horrible state for these women. Now, whatever the exact nature of their sin, their faithlessness toward their wives went completely contrary to their marriage covenant. And it went against God's design for marriage. Listen to verse 15. Did he not make them one? with a portion of a spirit in their union. What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Now, the translation difficulties are abundant here. You can see that by just looking at the footnotes in your Bible at these verses. But I think the overall message is clear. That is to say, when God made marriage, He made Adam and Eve. He made them one for each other. They were husband and wife for each other and no one else. God could have made ten wives for Adam, but he didn't. He only made Eve and brought her to the man. What was God's goal for marriage? One thing surely is this. He wanted them to be fruitful and multiply and bring forth children who would in turn grow up to serve the Lord. And the Israelites here were acting completely contrary to God's design for marriage. Abandoning their wives, being faithless, would prove disastrous also for their children. It would not produce the godly offspring God desired from marriage. 
And it says their hypocrisy was now hindering their prayers. Yes, they covered the Lord's altar with tears, but they were only offering what 2 Corinthians 7 describes as worldly sorrow for sin. They weren't truly sorry for their faithlessness and their treachery. They were only sorry that God wasn't listening to them while they lived in hypocrisy. And so the Lord gives His main command to His people here in Malachi to guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Notice how the Lord gives this command twice to emphasize the point. So we must take that to heart. It's a message for husbands, but also wives. Christian husbands and wives, guard your heart. Guard your heart. What kind of thoughts do you let into your heart and harbor there? If you are married, God calls you to act with covenant loyalty, faithfulness, steadfast love to your spouse. We get a small picture of that in 1 Peter 3 as well. Wives are to be subject to their own husbands. They are to act with respectful and pure conduct also towards their husbands. And husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them, never abandoning them, but caring for them, loving them. And as Christians, husbands and wives, uh, Christian husbands and wives do this, not only for the benefit of their marriage, but also for the benefit of the kingdom of God. That's our focus, too, in marriage, a kingdom focus. God is seeking still godly offspring. He builds His kingdom through godly husbands and wives who serve each other. Think of the example of of Boaz again. His covenant faithfulness to Ruth, what did it also bring about? Brought about King David from his family line. See, that's what God was after. Of course, the Lord had even greater plans than bringing about King David. He wanted to bring his own son into the world. In time, the Lord Jesus would be born the ultimate godly offspring. It was Christ who would grow up to live perfectly righteous love, uh, life we couldn't live. It was Christ who obediently went to the cross to suffer and die for all of our faithlessness, for all the covenant treachery we have committed. It's paid for in full by the blood of Christ. It was Christ who in His steadfast love would die for His bride, the church, to care for us, to give us eternal life. Let us look to Him in faith and also follow His perfect example. Amen. Let's now respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing together also about uh, the steadfast love of Christ towards His bride, the church. Uh, Hymn 52, stanzas 1, 2, and 5.